<laughs> oh, that joke's not even funny, so why am I laughing? Well, to find out, you'll have to stick around. My name's Kyle Macker, and I've been a pilot in the aviation industry for half my life. So you might be asking, why am I doing a marketing podcast, right? Well, I'm passionate about aviation and flying a big jet. It's just awesome. There's nothing like it. However, I realised that being a pilot is nothing what it used to be, like all jobs. And if I wanted to live the life of my dreams on my terms, I was going to have to teach myself a new skill. So three years ago, I started my marketing journey. I dove deep into the marketing world. I dug into the books, psychology, persuasion, anything that would help with the person saying yes to a product or service. I love it. However, I have a big problem. It's all theoretical knowledge. I have no hands-on experience and I still have so many questions. The biggest thing that I know is if we want our businesses to stand out in a noisy marketplace, we have to become better marketers. The best marketer will always win. So follow me on my journey and hopefully along the way it can help you spark up a few ideas that I've learned so that you can implement in your business. So make sure you subscribe to my channel so you don't miss the latest episodes. And also if there's anything you want to know about, get in touch with me on Instagram at this marketing thing. So let's dive right in. So why am I laughing? Well, to look at that, we have to take a bit more of a look at social proof. And that's this week's episode. It's chapter four of the influence book, and we're going to have a bit more of a deep dive into that. Now, we know that we should all use testimonials as now in our business, and it's told that we should, but do we just know how important that is? And I didn't till I'd read this chapter and how you know how extremely uh, beneficial it is to our business. So that's what we're going to do this week and have a have a bit of a look at that. So canned laughter. I remember my old man. He could not even watch those American sitcoms. He hated it with a passion. He really, really didn't like canned laughter. He thought it was fake and it's crap. And funnily enough, most people think the same thing. Even the artists think that canned laughter is not necessarily, and they don't even want it in the episode. So why do they use it? Well, we have to, let's have a little bit more look at what social proof is. Now, social proof by definition is basically looking to others to find out what the correct course of action is in a given situation. Now, like all weapons of influence, it's a shortcut for the brain. It's if the brain goes, well, if I don't have to analyze and I can just look to someone else to see what the correct course of action is, I'll just do that. Now, look, it works quite well most of the time. But the principle of social proof is its major strength as well as its major weakness. One definite big highlight weakness that I definitely think of is I remember back in the uh, dot-com bubble when it burst, before that, there was, it was just like, oh, everybody's buying these shares, let's just get in, make a ton of money, and next thing it burst, it all come crashing down. So that was its major weakness, you know, like everybody's doing it, let's get in, make a ton of money, and now we're not, now we're broke, and those companies were not worth anywhere near as much as the market capitalization said. So canned laughter, 
Now, TV executives put it in because research says has shown that people laugh longer and more often, and they rate the material as funnier, even if they're poor jokes. So when you come home from work and you sit on your couch and you've got a nice cold beer, you just finished dinner, you watch these American sitcoms, your brain goes into autopilot and someone's laughing, oh, I'll have a laugh too. So that's what social proof does, you know. I mean, TV, ex- TV executives aren't the only ones that do this. You know, tip jars in, in cafes or restaurants are full of cash. So you go, oh, well, the person before me has given a tip. Well, I should too. You know, even I remember going into a cafe and being the first one in there and the tip jar had money and I thought, geez, they mustn't have got the tip jar out from the night before. No, well, no, the reason they did it, they put money in the tip jar before they started the shift. They did that so I would know that it was the right thing to do. You know, another good example of this is uh, late last year and early this year, we had some terrible fires in Australia. It was just devastating. A lot of people lost their homes and, and some even people lost their lives. It was uh, it was just terrible, actually. They the, I think they were the worst on record. But what they did is, what, what, what they definitely do in Australia is they do these things called telethons. And, you know, some actors get on television and they take calls from ordinary Australians and you know, that, that want to donate some money. Now, a major part of those telethons is basically, oh, Mary Jane, she's a mother of two kids. You know, she, you know she's a hard worker and she's going to give her $50, you know. And then if I'm a mother of two, I go, oh, Mary Jane did it. I That's seen as the right behaviour. I'm going to call up and give my $50. That's how those things work. It's all based off social proof. To highlight this is a really good experiment you could do yourself, actually, and they, he talks about it. It's in the back of the book in the notes section. What what you do is if you go down on a busy sidewalk, so I live in Hong Kong, so it would be perfect for that. Go down on the street and look at the top of a tall building, right? And probably not much is going to happen. You might get one or two people just having a squeeze up at the at what you're looking at. But then go back the next day with four or five mates and look at the same place on that building. Now, if, if you get the same results as three New York social psychologists, they've, they got 80% of people passing by looking at the top of the building. Even people that weren't going to do it, they just couldn't resist to just take a little brief look up and look at the top of a building. That would be a funny thing to do in Hong Kong. I'd love to see if it worked, actually. There's one element that goes hand in hand with social proof, and that is uncertainty. If you're unsure, you look to others for an answer. You know, like, I mean, there's been countless times where I've gone, oh, what's everyone else doing? I've even thought that mentally, like, oh, jeez, oh, I don't know what to do. Um, what's everyone else doing? You know, I remember we went on this uh, picnic outdoor thing in Hong Kong and they basically dropped us off the boat and I was unsure where to set up and I just started looking around thinking, well, where's everyone else setting up? But I was overlooking a very subtle but important fact. Other people are probably looking to me 
to find out what the correct course of action was. You know, social proof works especially well when there's an ambiguous situation or we're unsure. And this phenomenon is called pluralistic ignorance. Now, this has been hot. The, this has been highlighted in a, a very famous case in uh, New York City back in the 60s. And I, I remember watching a documentary about it. It was just horrendous. It was really bad. But the case was Catherine Genovese. And she was in her late 20s walking home from work one night and she was murdered on her own street in 1964 in, uh, in Queens. Now, this was a long, loud, torturous murder. And the assailant had attacked her three times over 35 minutes. So someone had flicked their light on and the assailant would take off. Then no police would rock up. So he'd go back and attack her again like it was terrible, horrendous. But what the police and once the public got a hold of this through newspapers, they were absolutely shocked that no one of the 38 witnesses, you know, the the people that were living nearby hadn't called the police, even though they'd heard the screams. And then they were asked why, but... They were more con- they were as confused as anyone. Well, I thought someone else would. They were a little bit confused. But confusion doesn't sell newspapers. So the media run with, we're becoming a cold and heartless society. TV violence has driven us to this. You know, we're going to... Society's basically going down the gurgler. But this drew the attention of two psychology professors, Latan and Dali, and they examine the reports and they they come to two reasons why people didn't call the police. Now, the first reason was that they thought, oh, well, someone else will call the police. And then they thought that, oh, they'll call the police. So there was no action taken. The second reason is a little bit more interesting and intriguing to us was social proof involving the pluralistic ignorance effect. Because... If you think about it, emergency isn't always obvious. You know, is that loud bang on the street a gunshot or is a truck backfiring? Is that old man sleeping in the street, is he a heart attack victim or is he a drunk just sleeping one off? You know, if you have to ask yourself what's going on, you look to others for an answer. The problem is, is that they're probably looking to you to find that same answer out as well. When you're uncertain, you look to others. Now, we like to, and we like to appear poised and unflustered amongst our peers. So when everyone else is determined there's a non-emergency, then we determine there's nothing wrong either. And we just go along with social proof that nothing's wrong. Meanwhile, the danger might be mounting for that individual as in the case of Catherine Genovese. Now, what was fascinating, what Latan and Dali found, is that safety in numbers in this sort of situation is completely wrong. You might have a better chance of survival just by a single onlooker. Now, to test this, what Latan and Dali did is they did a series of experiments to state emergency events. And what they chose was an epileptic seizure. Now, if there was a single onlooker 
the number was 85% of people contacted the emergency authorities. However, the number dropped to 31% with five bystanders. Now, in the Catherine Genovese case, newspapers were claiming that society had become a bunch of cold and heartless people. That argument doesn't really hold up. Obviously, if 85% of single onlookers are contacting the authorities and only 31% with five bystanders, there's, a, there's something to do with the additional bystanders. I actually did a series of experiments in Florida regarding overhead power lines and you know it looked like the worker had been electrocuted by these power lines so you know in that case nearly everybody contacted the emergency authorities because they knew exactly it was an emergency it wasn't right so they contacted the authorities now the secret in these situations is to remove uncertainty if there's something wrong it is you pick out a single person you in the blue jacket call the police i need help that sort of thing it removes any uncertainty that there's emergency actually the author robert he had a story he tells a story in the book about he had a pretty nasty car accident at an intersection and he sort of clambered out of his car all bloodied and he went and knelt down at the front of his car and as he was trying to gather his thoughts and as he watched the lights turn green people slowly went through the intersection just gawking at the accident and he remembers saying to himself Oh no, it's happening to me. And so what he did is he stood up and pointed at the first car. He said, you pull over and call the police. And then the second car, he said, you pull over and call an ambulance. So what he did is he removed any uncertainty in the situation. The people that he pulled over instantly had to become rescuers. But then what he did is he turned the tide on social proof that oh, all these people are pulling over to help, I'll pull over too. So he said that a lot of people pulled over to help because now social proof said, oh, these guys are pulling over to help, I must, I'll help too. Now, I just want to share another important factor about social proof before I move on to how we can use it in sales and how important you know, some examples of how it can be used. Now, the principle of social proof works most powerfully when observing behavior of people like us. So we're more likely to follow a similar individual than a dissimilar one. The way Robert highlights this in the book is that his three-year-old son, he really wanted him to learn to swim because he was scared to death um, that he would drown because they'd just put a, a new pool in at their place. So, but the problem was, is his son would not go anywhere near the water without his floaty on. So he thought, well, I've, I've got a grad student that's uh, a lifesaver. I'll get him down here so he can, he'll know what to do to teach my son to swim. So he brings the, him down. He's a six foot two, full of muscle, lifesaver. And he has as much trouble as Rob. He can't get him to swim either. 
So his son goes off to this three-day sort of event, camping in summer thing, and at the end of the three days, Rob walks through the door to the pool area, and his son is about to jump in without his floaty on. He jumps into the water, goes down, and Rob's like, oh, no, he's going to get his shoes off to jump in to save his son. His son bobs up and swims to the edge, and he says, son, you can swim. He said, yeah, like as if nothing is wrong. And he said, well, when did you learn? Like, how? Rob's full of questions. He said, well, he said, well, Dad, I'm three years old. Tommy's three years old. And Tommy can swim without a floaties. So that means I can too. And that's when Rob knew he should have kicked himself because why was a three-year-old kid going to look to this look to a six foot two lifesaver to be able to swim when really he needed another three-year-old to coax him to swim because if a three-year-old can do it he's like me I should be able to do it too and it just goes to show a major factor of social proof is that we look to others to decide our behavior especially if they're similar to us now another example of this is probably the most stunning thing I've ever read in a book none second to none it is absolutely astounding and I can remember reading it and then having to read it again out loud and then the third time I had to go and interrupt my fiance's movie that she was watching and read it aloud to her and we were both absolutely astounded and so much so I don't even know if you'll believe me after I tell you because at first I didn't believe it either but here goes so after there's a highly publicized suicide and it ends up on the front page of a newspaper, airplanes, private planes, corporate jets and commercial airline crashes go up 1000%. Now this is within a certain data set and I'll, I'll tell you the years shortly, but that's not the only thing to go up. Car fatalities shoot up as well. Now they thought one reason for this might be the same conditions that the cause the person to commit suicide in the first place. The social condition, say an economic downturn, like we have at the moment through COVID, right? But the problem is that the increase only occurs where the incident was publicized. So that doesn't really explain it, that, that's out. Then they thought, well, what about bereavement? You know, complete sorrow, like people are sad. And maybe that they're less attentive in their jobs when they're flying or they're driving or they're fixing an aeroplane. But the thing that can't explain is that suicide of a single person, single vehicle car accidents go up. However, if murder-suicide situation, it's a multiple vehicle accidents go up. So both bereavement and social condition can't explain it. However, a professor from the University of California in San Diego thinks he found the answer. And his name was David Phillips, and what he believed it was was the Werther effect. Now, the Werther effect came from a book written two centuries ago, and it was created by a great German author named John van Goeth. The novel was entitled, this is the translated version, Sorrows of a Young Werther. Now, in it, the hero commits suicide. 
Now, everyone loved this book. It shot um, Jean to fame. But what it, no one expected to happen, including the author, is it sparked a wave of emulative suicides across Europe and even le leading to the banning of the novel in some European countries. So Phillips concluded that people kill themselves in a morbid illustration of social proof. These people had behaved on the basis how another troubled individual had behaved. Like what happened in the novel. Now the data set from aircraft that I was talking about going up a thousand percent, this data set was taken from 1947 to 1968. And what he concluded is that on average an increase of 58 people kill themselves after a suicide has been publicized on the front page of a newspaper within the two months after the suicide had occurred. Phillips also found that the geographic location that the suicide occurred, there was more suicides in that area. As well as the greater the publicity in that area, the greater the number of suicides occurred. Now this completely, absolutely stunned me. It blew me away. So I had to go do my own research and the, the suicide that really jumped out to me was Robin Williams in August 2014. And I found some articles and while they didn't call it the Werther effect, they were just asking why. This Times article was like, why is there such an increase in suicides after Robin Williams' suicide? And I was right. It was an increase of 10%. There was 18,690 as compared to the predicted or expected figure that for that time of year was 16,849 a 10% increase. And that doesn't even account for, and I couldn't even find data for, car accidents or people that had killed themselves in a less direct method, i.e. crashing a car or an aeroplane or something of the sort. And that less direct method, you know, obvious people maybe do that because to protect their reputations or spare their families the shame and hurt, and maybe even to let their family collect on life insurance. Now there was another paper that I found in that was written in 1996 when Kurt Cobain committed suicide. There was a spike in suicides after that and what is amazing that just we know this is social proof is that it was the same age bracket as Kurt Cobain. The 30 to 44 year olds went up disproportionately and what else went up was the, the way they did it due to strangulation. Now what about aircraft accidents like Phillips talked about in his paper? Now I've got a hunch this is highly speculative and it may even ruffle, ruffle a few feathers here but in March 8 2014 MH370 disappeared and we still haven't found that airplane to this day. I believe the pilot committed suicide. I don't believe it was a terrorist attack and I don't believe it was a mechanical issue with the airplane. Now, one year later, there was a lot of talk that the pilot had committed suicide. And one year after the anniversary, highly publicized, on March 24, 2015, that German wings flight crashed into the side of hill the fo had locked the captain out 
and then he purposely crashed the airplane into the side of a mountain. Now I'm wondering, did that first officer, after seeing the highly publicised news about MH370 and the speculation that the pilot committed suicide, did he go, well that pilot solved his problem with suicide. Can I solve my problems with suicide? And obviously the the first officer and both the, the captain and the MH370 um, were in dark places, but did that first officer use social proof to go, oh, well, he solved his problems? It's, a spe- it's speculation, it's a hunch, but it's my hunch. What amazes me is just how powerful social proof is. And I, I hope I've really been able to highlight, highlight that to you and how it can lead to a life or death decision. And what Phillips has shown us is that highly publicized suicide there's a distressing tendency for certain people who are similar to the victim to kill themselves either directly or indirectly because they find that the idea is a lot more legitimate because that person was similar to them. Now, how can we use social proof in our businesses? Well, we can use testimonials. Now, not just any testimonials. If you're a skincare product that's selling an anti-wrinkle product, there is no point in get on getting a male testimonial for that product. That is a waste of time. Even, even I would go far as to say is don't even get a young female testimonial for that product if you're going to use, say, like a video testimonial or something like that. Because we know from social proof that we... It works best when those people are similar to us. So a 20-year-old and a 50-year-old are not the same. So don't do that. And from the research I've done, and I see it a fair bit, people get this really wrong, especially in small businesses. It's not so much big businesses. They've got this dialed in because they know this. But small businesses uh, sometimes get this a little bit wrong from what I see. It all comes back to who you're targeting, doesn't it? Like it's the it's all about the who. Who are you selling to? It's not, a, it's not about your products. It's about the who, right? The other thing you can do is, um, if say if you're a car salesman selling face to face, is tell stories about your happy customers. This this builds beliefs and it breaks down false beliefs. Now I like to get three types of testimonials. I like to get vehicle internal and external based text testimonials. Now, when someone buys something, they buy something and you have to break down these objections. They're vehicle-based objections, internal objections, and external objections. Now, if you can get testimonials that directly talk to those, I find it's a really good thing to do. So, example of vehicle is the product or service that you're offering. So, a testimonial would be, oh, the product's really amazing, really happy with it, five stars, all that sort of thing, right? Internal-based testimonials are internal things. So like, oh, I wasn't sure about the product, but it really worked for me. They're internal-based objections that have been hit with a testimonial internally, right? Then there's the external testimonial. So it was really great. Anything external is like 
outside of them. So like money, time. So it's great value for money. I was really happy with the value I got. The customer service was really great. All that external stuff, that's really, really beneficial to you. Now, I don't think this is really ethical is that some people use fake reviews. Now, it's it's not really so much small businesses, but big businesses do this. They employ actresses and actors to basically their ideal customer or to use their products and be happy. You know, they're, they're fake, right? Now, I don't know. I, I really believe that business is a reflection of yourself. And if you're having to use fake testimonials and that sort of thing, I, I just... I don't think it's ethical. So I mean, there's a re- I mean, if you have trouble getting reviews for your product, maybe there's something wrong with your product. So you need to go back and increase your offer, increase the value, or you know, like the product doesn't work that well. So I mean, you'd rather know. I would rather an honest review than than not. So at least I can go back and fix it, right? So. Look, that's the end of this week's episode. I'm absolutely cooked. That was a bit of a big one. So, look, I hope you enjoyed it. hope you uh, realise how important social proof is. It is absolutely imperative that we use it in our businesses. So next week I'm going to look at another chapter in influence. It's really interesting. So, till next time, enjoy. Take care. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to get a hold of us, we're on Facebook. We've actually made a group. And the group name is This Marketing Thing. Catch you next time.